Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Our psalm today is the 139th psalm, Psalm 139, so if you'll be finding that, we will read that in just a few moments. To say that we like our privacy would certainly be an understatement. The truth is many of us go to great lengths to maintain our privacy. Our backyard neighbors years ago put these trees between us and them that have now grown quite large. Evidently, they did not want us to see what was going on back there. Other people erect privacy fences so that no one can see what is happening. We certainly protect our devices. We are private with our devices. At the very least, we have a code that we have to enter before we can get in so that no one else can get in. And even beyond that, many people have software that protect their devices from entry by others. I'm sure you've noticed something that when you Google something and search for something online, that product or place will very soon thereafter appear on your Facebook feed. I don't like that. I find that to be an invasion of privacy, that they're tracking what I'm Googling and then targeting the advertising to me. We just don't like anyone knowing our business. After all, it is our business. Therefore, we are guarded in front of everybody except those who are closest to us, and even in the most intimate of relationships, we are not fully known. We certainly don't share every thought that crumbs across our mind. How embarrassing would that be for other people to know absolutely every thought that comes into our minds? And while that is all perfectly natural, as long as it doesn't go to extremes, our psalm this morning is going to tell us that there is one who knows all about us, knows all of our thoughts, all of our deeds, everything there is to know about us. And depending upon what you might be thinking, that is either a great comfort or it is a great embarrassment. We look at another psalm of David this morning. Again, we do not know the context or the setting behind this particular psalm, though it certainly is not necessary for us to understand the text. It does appear that David's life is once again in turmoil. He's had a lot of those situations. And so he seems to be the target of others. He has been hurt by them. He has been maligned by them. And it is in the midst of this conflict and hostility that he turns his attention to God. And while we cannot get more specific than that with the setting, we certainly do know the topic. This is a rich theological psalm dealing with some of the greatest attributes of God. Attributes like his omniscience, meaning that he is all-knowing. And this is probably the weightiest text in all of the Bible on that particular topic. We'll also see his omnipresence. That is, he is everywhere. And these two go together. Because he is all-knowing, 
He is omnipresent. He is all places at all times. And then we'll get a little bit into his omnipotence, meaning he is all powerful. And you may recall that these are topics that we looked at in life groups some time ago. But this is not an academic study this morning. David is going to deal with these theological issues from really a devotional standpoint. So this is not an academic exercise. This is personal. This is forged from David's experience with God. We might call it applied theology. It's going to touch both the head and the heart. And we're going to see that this particular psalm is easily divided into four sections or stanzas, each of them six verses long. Now, overall, I'm calling this a psalm of God. That does not mean that other psalms are not about God. We know that all Scripture ultimately is about God, and that includes all of the Psalms. So in using that title, I'm not trying to imply that this says more about God than other places. I'm simply acknowledging that this Psalm is about the attributes of God. Those incommunicable attributes that we talked about are the particular emphasis here and focus of this Psalm. So let's read together. It's long, it's 24 verses, but let's read it together. David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Then stanza two begins in verse seven. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me by night or be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. Stanza three, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. And in the last stanza, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with a malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do not I loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, 
and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. All right, four points this morning on this psalm of God, each taken from the four stanzas. And the first one is the first six verses where we are going to see God's omniscience. Now, that's the theological term, which means that God knows everything. David begins with the statement that God has searched him and thus knows him. And you may have noticed that the psalm actually closes with a similar statement where David is asking God to search him once again. So he acknowledges that God has searched him in the past, and he invites God to search him again in the present. So I actually wanted to call this a psalm of searching. But I decided that that was too close to one we did previously called a psalm of seeking. Even though the searching in this case is God searching us. And when we looked at the seeking, it was us seeking God. But I decided not to use that. So the searching here is a thorough investigation. This is not a casual glance. This is God looking in every corner of our lives. Turning over every table in our lives and seeing everything. Then David is going to expand on this truth that God knows us. We sing songs about the fact that God's knowledge of us is immense. And we take comfort in that, counting it a great blessing that in spite of how great God is, God knows us intimately. We sing a song sometimes called, God knows my name. He knows my name. David is saying much more than that. It is not just that God knows your name. God knows absolutely everything about us. Verse 2, he knows our actions. And this includes before they are undertaken. Meaning that God does not just see what we do and then know what we're doing. God knows what we're going to do before we know what we're going to do. Now every year we try to get children to behave with the thought that Santa Claus knows whether they've been good or bad. And we try to tell them that the presents they receive from Santa Claus are going to depend on which category they fall in, whether they've been good or bad. But it is not Santa Claus we need to be worried about, especially not on the first Sunday of October. Because there is one who knows us far more than any Santa Claus, and that is God himself. And the Bible makes it very clear that even we do not know ourselves. That our hearts are deceptive and desperately wicked or evil. Therefore, we don't even know ourselves. But God knows us more than anyone else does and more than even we know ourselves. This is further elaborated on in verse 3. It's not just our actions that he knows. He also knows our thoughts, the second half of verse 2. Other people can see our actions, but God knows our hearts and our minds. And that's what bothers us sometimes. I mean, we can hide our thoughts from everyone else. I say it occasionally when I preach. I have no idea what you're thinking about now. You might be looking at me, looking like to everyone else that you're paying attention, but your mind may be somewhere else entirely. I cannot know that, but God does. On the positive side, this is, this is why it is appropriate for all of us to express our emotions to God. Because he knows us already. This is the thing we see so often in the Psalms, and sometimes it makes us uncomfortable. Sometimes the psalmist is expressing his emotions in such powerful ways. In fact, we'll see it in the last stanza, that it sort of makes us stand back and say, I'm really not comfortable with those words. 
But we don't have to feel that way because God already knows our actions and he already knows our thoughts. And since he already knows our actions and he already knows our thoughts, verse 4 tells us he even knows our words before we speak them. And all three of these combine to demonstrate the completeness of God's knowledge of us. He knows us way better than any closest friend or our spouse, better than even we know ourselves. His knowledge of us is so immense that it cannot be added to. God can never learn something else. You and I are to always be learning. We are to be growing in our knowledge of various things, including God. But God's knowledge never increases because it is total. Leading in verse 4 to the conclusion that God knows all. And again, this ought to be a comforting thought. He knows your circumstances. They are not outside of his control, something that we're going to see in the third stanza. In fact, verse 5 reminds us that God's knowledge of us and our circumstances actually impacts how he guides us. But we also have to admit that there is some anxiety in this. That is, we're, we get a little anxious to think that God knows everything about us. But in, at this point in the psalm, the response is praise or awe. It's very similar to Paul's reaction in Romans 11, where he exclaims, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. So this first stanza about the omniscience of God, the all-knowing God, ends with praise. These thoughts are beyond our comprehension. Finite minds cannot understand an infinite knowledge. It was a humbling thought to David, both comforting and convicting. And I hope the same is true for us. Stanza 2 leads us to not only God's omniscience, but secondly, we see his omnipresence. He is always present. That is, he is present in all places at all times. Part of the reason that God is all-knowing is because God is all-present. There is nowhere that one can go to get away from God. Now, these statements from David do not necessarily imply that he is trying to do that. Rather, he is simply thinking about the furthest places he could possibly go in any direction. And thinking about those furthest places leads him to the conclusion that even there, he cannot get away from God. God will be found there. Jonah found this out in real life, right? You know the story of Jonah. The thing we know most about Jonah is that he was swallowed by a whale or a large fish and spit back out or vomited out three days later. But what you might, not, but, but you, what you might forget about the story of Jonah is that he was on that ship because he was running away from God. That is, God had told Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel. But Jonah did not want the Ninevites to be saved, and he knew God to be a merciful and gracious God. Therefore, he decided not to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel. He got on a cruise ship going in the opposite direction. And he soon discovered the very thing that David is arguing for in this psalm, that you cannot run away from God. Now, some commentators do conclude that David was, in fact, trying to find such an escape. That is, he was following the path of Jonah. I don't believe that's the case. I simply believe David is reinforcing the fact that God knows all because God is everywhere. And he is considering what would happen if someone were to try to flee away from God. 
And he finds comfort in the fact that there is no such place. And so he asks the question in verse 7, and then immediately answers it later. High or low, God is there. Now, clearly, we know that God is in heaven. In fact, heaven is synonymous with the presence of God. So if you go high, that is you go to heaven, you know God is going to be there. But David also says if you go low, that is if you go to Sheol, which is the Old Testament terminology for the place of the dead, what we might call hell, there you will find God as well. You say, now wait a minute, I thought hell was the, at least in large part, the absence of God. I thought a large part of hell was the fact that God's presence is not there. And in part, that is true. But in another sense, God is there as well because he is there in wrath and judgment. And so even there, you cannot escape the presence of God. East and West, verse 9, we saw this same terminology last week when we talked about the forgiveness of sins. That is, God forgives us as far as the East is from the West. That's as far away as possible. And East and West never come together. And the same terminology is used here to speak of God's presence. God is present and guiding, verse 10. Therefore, verses 11 and 12, even darkness cannot hide us from God. That is, we cannot get away from God, even if we wanted to, under the cover of darkness. Now, we know that a lot of sin, a lot of evil, does in fact occur in the dark. That is, we can hide from other people in the darkness, but we cannot hide from God. And that is why we sometimes are amazed at certain crimes that take place. And we say to ourselves, I cannot believe they would do that in broad daylight. Because most crimes are committed at night under the cover of darkness. But with God, there is no distinction. Midnight and noon are alike to God. Since God is light, his presence converts midnight into noonday. And as believers... Always having the presence of God should be a comfort to us. No night is too dark. No circumstances too difficult. Jesus promised the same thing in the Great Commission. The very last words of Matthew's gospel are these, from the lips of Jesus, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." Therefore, nothing, Paul says, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So the omnipotence of God is not an academic exercise. It is not a doctrine to be discussed in seminary between seminary students and seminary professors. It is a comforting truth that all of us should be aware of, especially during times of crisis. And cling to the omnipotence of God, though, again, we cannot know the specific setting behind this psalm. David has turned to these wonderful truths in a difficult season of his life. He is embracing and rejoicing and remembering the very presence of God. And I want to encourage you to do likewise in your times of trial or furthermore, at any time. So we move to the third stanza. Not only all knowing of God, the omniscience. And not only the omnipresence of God, that is, he is everywhere at all times, but in the third stanza, we get to the omnipotence of God. That is, that he is all-powerful. Now, in some sense, all of this falls in place because of his omniscience. That is, one reason God knows everything is because God made everything. So the terminology in the third stanza is about God's creative uh, power. 
and therefore I'm calling it his omnipotence. The creator naturally knows his creation. So while the statements are primarily about him being the creator, the ability he has to create demonstrates that he is omnipotent. His knowledge, David says, begins in the womb. Now, David is not thinking here about abortion, though that is likely where our minds went. David is simply teaching the power of God through creation, and that creative power is in the womb. But certainly there is application here to abortion. When does life begin is the big question. And those who agree with abortion say that life does not begin until birth or until uh, the baby is able to live outside of the womb. And they continue to push that, making abortion legal later and later in a pregnancy. But we do not agree with that because of what the Bible says. We believe that, uh, that uh, uh, life begins at conception, that is, in the womb. Now, with technology today, we know that the parts of a baby are developed very early. There is actually brain activity before the mother even knows she is pregnant. And the same is true of a beating heart and the circulation of blood. But we ultimately do not believe these things because of technology. We believe these things because of revelation. That is, God says so, not only here, but elsewhere as well. You know that verse in Jeremiah chapter 1. God is speaking to Jeremiah, and God actually says to Jeremiah that he had consecrated him, that he knew him, and that he appointed him to be a prophet all even before God formed him in the womb. So talk about a comprehensive omniscience. God knew Jeremiah before he was in the womb. Al Mohler, in his latest book, The Gathering Storm, says, abortion looms as the great moral scar on the modern age, a singular symbol of the culture of death in the most technologically advanced nation on earth. This has been a moral and political hot-button issue since 1973's Roe versus Wade decision and continues to be a divisive topic in this year's election. And no doubt the, the debate will continue to raise on, rage on. But the biblical view is clear. God created us with his power. He sustains us with his power until our time on earth is done. So all of our life is in his hands. Verse 16, our days are ordained before they even begin. And that is why some say from womb to tomb. But even that's not accurate. We've already seen that God said, Jeremiah, I knew you before the womb. So to say from womb to tomb is not accurate. God knew us before that. And certainly God knows us beyond the tomb. That is, he gives us eternal life. And so God knows us from eternity past and will know us to eternity future. So all of this is a way of saying that God's power is in control of our lives. And again, verse 14, the response is praise for God's handiwork. Because God knows what he's doing and does not make mistakes. Now, I realize that there are things that we would like to change about ourselves. I mean, David is expressing how we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. And yet, we all have things we would like to change. I'd like to be a little taller. I'd like to have more hair. I'd like to be more athletic and better looking. Although, in both of those categories, I'm pretty far on the chart already. 
But those are all minor issues. There are much greater issues than more hair or being taller. We struggle when there are birth deficiencies, and all of us know someone, perhaps in our own family, who has major birth deficiencies that were clearly no fault of their own. And in those cases, we naturally want to ask God why, and we cry out for answers. The assumption in Jesus' day was that it was caused by sin. You hear it in the question Jesus was asked about the blind man. They asked Jesus, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They seem to have no category for anything else. Someone's sin caused this birth deficiency in their minds. Now, we could talk about biological reasons if you're good at science, which I'm not, so I won't. But you could go to biology and say, this is the reason why there are certain birth deficiencies. But the bottom line is we should stick to the Bible, and there we find that in spite of all of the medical and even mental issues that are indeed very hard to deal with, it does not negate these verses. None of this was hidden from God because he is in control of the womb. Numerous times in the Bible, we, talk, we hear talk about God opening or closing the womb. And genetic deformities don't take him by surprise. So God's thought towards us are vast, and they cannot be numbered. Now that leads us to the fourth stanza. We've seen the omniscience, the om omnipresence, and the uh, all-powerful, the omnipotence of God. And in this last stanza, I'm calling it God's justice. Now you say that doesn't match up. In a sermon, the points are supposed to be symmetrical. They're supposed to be parallel. That is, we've seen omni, 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 and we come to the fourth one, and there's no omni. Well, I had to go off key here because there is a drastic change. In fact, the change from verses uh, 18 to verse 19 is so stark that some commentators believe that these last verses, this last stanza, was not originally part of this psalm. Now, I don't think we need to go there. I think we have it as a unit and we ought to treat it as a unit. After all, clearly, the last two verses bring us back to where this psalm started. I'm simply telling you that there is a stark change when we come to verse 19. The psalm ends in this last stanza with David's desire for God to act in justice against his enemies. And it seems a bit out of place for us. David now praying against his enemies. But this is a frequent thing in the psalms. And we have a hard time reconciling that with what we read in the New Testament where we are to love our enemies and pray for them. In fact, there, this is so frequent in the Psalms, there's a category of Psalms called the imprecatory Psalms, which means praying against your enemies, asking God to deal with your enemies. Now, we desire for our enemies to repent and to come to Christ. At least that ought to be our desire. Now, whatever your political leaning, we usually don't wish harm on the political party that we are opposed to. I mean, even in a nasty presidential election season, we heard yesterday or the day before Obama tweeting out prayers for the president amidst his COVID diagnosis. And then we heard of Joe Biden, the opponent to the current president, pulling his negative ads as a result of the diagnosis. So even in the harshest of political arenas, we are seeing at least some compassion for political enemies. But David is not seeking revenge nor retribution. David has a desire for a holy life in response to who God is 
Knowing that God knows him intimately, David wants to live a holy life. Therefore, he wants to be separated from those who would drag him down. He does not want them to influence him negatively. Now, that doesn't mean every sinner. David himself is one of those. He is talking here about those who actively oppose God, and because he wants nothing to do with them, he necessarily has a desire for his opponents not to be harmed, but a desire for them to be distant from him so that he will not be influenced by them. Now, notice very carefully in verses 20 through 22 that this is not primarily personal. It's religious. David is so identified with God that an enemy of God is an enemy of him. Now, we use this phrase positively sometimes. We might say, any friend of Aaron is a friend of mine. That is, if, if you're friends with Aaron, then I like Aaron, so you must be a friend of mine. But we use it negatively as well. After all, in moral or political positions, we often assume that those who are opposed to us are our enemies. That is, we come to conclude that I'm a Christian, I hold a biblical worldview with Christian views, therefore, if you disagree with me on some moral or political issues, you must be wrong, and therefore, you are now my opponents. And we conclude that you are thus an enemy of God. Now, listen to me carefully. We have to be very careful here. We have to be very careful to come to the conclusion that I believe one way, and I think I'm right because I'm trying to follow God. And because you disagree with me on a moral or political issue, I'm now concluding that you are an enemy of God. It is very common these days to hear people say, you can't be a Christian if. And they fill in the line. If you vote differently than me, you must not be a Christian. If you have a different opinion or conviction about a moral issue or a social issue than me, then you can't be a Christian. These types of phrases just really need to be stopped, to be honest with you. We need to not say these kinds of things. Jumping to conclusions, making judgments about people's eternal salvation based on whether or not they agree with me politically or morally or socially. I'm talking about within the church here. I'm not talking about uh, the, the, those outside of the church who are opposed to God. I'm talking about labels within the church. Clearly, we have bought into raising second and third tier doctrinal or moral issues into first tier do, uh, doctrines of orthodoxy and therefore concluding that someone simply cannot be a believer. That is not what David is doing here. David's enemies are actively opposed to God, and therefore, he is an enemy of them as well. And so all of this then leads David to ask God to search his heart once again. And perhaps the connection here needs to be acknowledged. David is saying, God, I want you as a God of justice to judge your enemies. But you know what? I could be wrong. So I want you to search my heart. David wants to make sure that he's not falsely labeling someone as an enemy of God who may not be one. And therefore, he humbles himself, and he asks God to search him once again to make sure that he is not in the wrong. And I think that is what all of us need, a healthy dose of humility. Whatever side of the political aisle you are on, are you willing to ask God honestly to search you? 
and make sure you're not falsely accusing someone else or labeling someone else who sits across the political aisle from you. I think that would go a long way in toning down the accusations, at least within the church. I have no such hope for our culture. Now, like many of the Psalms that we've studied, it ends essentially where it began. David realizes that his own heart is sinful, and therefore it needs the continual light of God to penetrate and reform. Search me and convict me so that we might continue to grow in holiness and in intimacy with God is what he is saying. And clearly this should be our prayer and our desire as well. Realizing that we don't even know the sin and evil in our own hearts, are we willing to allow and invite God to search our hearts? And when he does that, are we willing to confess and repent, to allow his Holy Spirit to convict so that we might be changed? And yes, this applies to our online exchanges as well. Now notice the last phrase. He says, and lead me in the way everlasting. That is our ultimate goal, isn't it? To faithfully follow Christ, not only in this life, but into eternity. And I know I keep mentioning the previous two series on the Holy Spirit and wisdom, but it it just seems to keep coming up. That David is praying that God would lead him, lead him in wisdom and lead him by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And that is the essence of what a disciple is. A disciple means someone who is following. In this case, a disciple of Christ is a follower of Christ. There is nothing we can hide from him. He is all-knowing. There is nowhere we can flee from him. He is always present. There is nothing we can do apart from him because he is all-powerful and our creator. And if we refuse his grace and mercy... There is nothing we can do to overcome his wrath. After all, he is a God of justice. So given who God is, it is imperative that we respond to him in repentance and faith. And if you've not done that, I'm inviting you to do that today. But if you are a believer, I am inviting you to join David and pray to God, search me and know my heart and see if there is something in here that needs to be addressed and then to repent and continue to follow him. And I'm confident that's the case for all of us. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for the opportunity to be here, for the health and the energy we have to to get up this morning and come to worship. And I do pray that you would search our hearts. Lord, we don't know our own hearts. So we pray with David, search our hearts and see if there be anything in there. Convict us. Help us to repent and respond in faith, and continue to faithfully follow you. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.